the 27th and final chapter of Hilchus Malba Beleva, the laws of a lender and borrower. This chapter contains 17 halachas and continues with various details regarding the writing of a document and the signing of the witnesses and the actual text of the document. Perek Shiva Ba'esrim, the 27th chapter, Halacha Aleph. In this halacha, the Rambam will explain the difference between a document which is signed by Jews as opposed to that which is signed by non-Jews and under what condition a non-Jewish document would be valid in Jewish court. A document, no matter what language or no matter what handwriting it is written in, if it is written as has been the established principle by Jewish documents, meaning that it is impossible to forge them, that if one erased it and rewrote, it would be recognizable that there is some trace from the previous ink. In other words, it has to be a type of ink which cannot be erased without leaving a trace. And so too, and it would be impossible to add or take away from it without it being recognized. And the witnesses are Jews, and those witnesses are capable of reading. It is a valid document, and one can even even collect from the Mishubadim. As we have learned previously in Hilchas Malbavaleva, that if one person, Ruben, let's call him, lends money to Shimon, and Shimon thereafter, as a result of all of his belongings being subject to repaying this money, he owes Reuben, sells some of his land to a third party, Levi, that later on, since it was Meshubot, this land was already Meshubot, subject to the collection of Reuben's debt, later on, should Reuben be unable to collect from Shimon, he will grab the field back from Levi. However, that is only if the loan between Reuben and Shimon was with a document, the Milva Bishtar. A Milva Baalpeh, if it was only oral, he would be unable to collect from the Mishabodim, from Levi who was bought the field from Shimon. However, the Rambam says here that as long as it is a kosher document, he can collect from the Mishabodim. This is, however, if it's a Jewish document. But all documents which are signed by non-Jews, they are in, invalid unless the following conditions are fulfilled. First of all, it's only certain types of documents. Except for documents of selling and buying and also documents involving debts. And they have to have the following principles. It's only if the money was given in front of these witnesses, the that the witnesses write in the document, that before us, such and such a person counted such and such money as a buying, as buying for buying an object, or money for a loan, and it was counted out in front of us. Furthermore, it must be done in the non-Jewish courts, the civil courts. But if it was just written in the place where they gather together, where all the judges gather and hear all the claims and so on, however, the judge, the non-Jewish Jewish judge, has not validated the signatures, there is no kiyam on the signatures of these witnesses, this doesn't help whatsoever, even should there be valid non-Jewish witnesses on the document, on the civil document, it is still not valid unless the judge has given it his kiyum. That the judge 
is normally considered reliable enough that if he gives his kiyum, he validates the documents, it will be a valid civil document. The Kain Srichim A.D. Yisrael, and we still need Jewish witnesses, to testify on the Goyim who are testifying on this document, and also on the judge who has validated the signatures of these witnesses, that they are not well known as far as taking bribery is concerned. In other words, even... The witnesses we don't trust, the non-Jewish witnesses without the key of the, of the non-Jewish judge. And both those witnesses and the non-Jewish judge we don't trust unless we have valid Jewish witnesses testifying that they do not normally take bribery. Because if they take bribery or are known to have been taking bribery, then the, their testimony of the witnesses and the key of the judge is worthless. And should this non-Jewish document, the civil document, be lacking any one of these factors, they are considered like a piece of clay, absolutely worthless. And so too the following documents are also invalid. And so too documents regarding a loan, evidently referring here to a loan in which the money was not counted out in front of the witnesses, the one party has admitted to another owing money, umatones of a gift, upshores, compromises, umachiles, that one person has been meichel, has given up his claim, forgiven a loan. Shaheim be'edim shalehem, with non-Jewish witnesses. Even though all of these factors we mentioned previously are present, they are nevertheless considered like worthless pieces of clay. And my teacher's rule, says the Rambam, another way, even documents of a loan, that the money was given in front of these witnesses, psuling, are also invalid. That the only time our sages allowed a document with non-Jewish witnesses, even if the money was counted before them, is only in the case of selling and buying. The Rambam previously, however, at the beginning of the Lacha, said it applies both to loans and also to sales. And the Rambam says, And I do not agree to this opinion that says it applies only to Mecca HaMemkar and not to Shtar The Rambam holds, as he said at the beginning of the Lacha, the Shtar were also good with all the conditions. Now another case. The Jewish judges do not know how to read this document which was written in the non-Jewish court. It's in a different language. You give it to two different goyim, one at a time, not in the presence of the other, and have each one separately read it in front of the judges. And it turns out each one of them is speaking innocently because not, they cannot conspire to say something else which is not written in the document because they're not in the presence of each other. Therefore, we trust them that they are reading the document correctly and translating it for us properly. And should their reading coincide, you are allowed to collect using this document. However, only from B'nai Chayrin, those objects which are presently in the, in the custody of the borrower, for example. Not things which he has sold to someone else. However, you cannot be tainted to take away, using this document, belongings which belong to a third party who has bought them from the borrower. 
but as you can normally do with a document. With this document, you cannot do so. If Nesha ain't like kale, because there is no kale, there is no publicity associated with this document. Because those that bought from this borrower did not know what was going on by the non-Jews. The only reason we say that you're allowed to take away from the lukuches, from those that bought from the borrower, is because they should have guarded themselves. They should have known that he owed money. However, how was he, in this case, how was he supposed to know what was done in Goyesha court? In Yiddish, in the Jewish court, everyone knows what happened, who owes who money. And everyone knows when there's a document, there are Jewish witnesses, and they say, they tell their friends what it is they witnessed. However, in Goyesha court, they cannot protect themselves. Therefore, they're not responsible. Halacha base. In this halacha, the Rambam will approach the, the difference or the similarity between Eidich Sima and Eidich Mesira. Eidich Sima are those witnesses who sign on a document. Eidich Mesira are witnesses that the document has been given over. Now, let's say the ones that are signed, the Eidich Sima, are non-Jewish. But we have Eidich Mesira that when a document was handed over, we have two valid Jewish witnesses. Is the document then valid? The Rambam says yes. Shtar of Goyim. When the witnesses are non-Jews, Shemosra Haleva Liyad Hamalva, Oyamechal Liyad Lekeach, and the the borrower gave it over to the lender, or the seller gave it over to the buyer, Bifneishne Edim Yisrael, in front of two Jewish witnesses. So there are valid witnesses on the Mesira. Even though it was not made in the Goyesha court, which was one of the requirements we had in the previous halacha, and it does not have all of the other things we mentioned in the previous halacha, all the other requirements, nevertheless, since there are Eidim Mesira that it was handed over, Jewish Eidim Mesira, it's a valid document. And therefore, he can collect using this document from the Bnei Chayrin, the objects presently, in the possession of the one that owes the money. However, this is only when the witnesses before whom the document was given over, only when they know how to read this document in this, in this non-Jewish language, and they read it when it was given over in their presence. And it also has to be uh, with all the requirements of a Jewish document, Namely, that it should be unable to forge it or to add on or subtract from it, as we mentioned in the first halacha. And why can we not use this document to collect even from Mishubodim, even from the land which the one that owes the money sold to a third party? Since this would be a valid document, we have a Mesira. Because this also is not associated with publicity. And therefore, the buyer cannot protect himself. And even though here we have two witnesses, Edi Mesira, that it was given over, nevertheless, there is only a Kail when there are Edechsima who are Jews. Only when those people that sign on it are, Jew, are Jewish. Should they Jews only witness the transaction, the handing over the document, ain't like Kail. The next three halachas discuss the possibility of someone forging a document by adding in something at the end of the document, before the signatures. Halacha Gimel. Tikkun Shtari Yisrael Kachu. The proper way to prepare a, a Jewish document is as follows. All documents have to repeat the major concept of the document in the last line, the final line. However, we cannot learn anything new 
from this last line, because Shema Hoyuha Edi Mirochokimi Gufashal Shtar, Bichtei Hashita. Perhaps the witnesses signed one line away from the bottom of the document. And along came somebody to forge, and he wrote in this last line on the bottom of this document. Since it's virtually impossible to force the witnesses to write exactly underneath the last line of the document, they usually will leave a space. So we are worried that on that space, that line which is left empty, somebody will forge something. So therefore, a sage has established that you should merely repeat something from the document on that last line, and therefore we will be sure that there can be no forgery. However, Therefore, witnesses who signed two lines below the bottom of the document, the document is invalid. Why? Because then someone could forge in two lines. The last line, true, according to, this, to the decree of the sages, one does not learn from. But there are two lines here, so the last line wouldn't be learned. But the first line would be learned. Therefore, Pachos Mikan Kasha, should it be less than two lines? In other words, there's not a space to write two complete lines. In this case, it's kosher is valid, because there would only be room to write one line, and that line we anyway would not learn from. Now, how large are these two lines? These two lines were referring to It's in the handwriting of the witnesses, not in the handwriting of the scribe. Because someone that forges goes after the, the handwriting of, this, of the witnesses, not after that of a sefer. The difference between the writing of a sefer and that of the witnesses is that usually the sefer is much more accustomed to writing and he is able to write in a smaller, more precise manner. And so too, someone that is trying to add something onto a, to a document, we do not assume he is a professional forger and does this all the time, probably he is not expert in, in writing, and therefore his writing will be more similar to the witnesses than that of the scribe. How large are these two lines? It includes both the line itself, the body of the letter, and also the avir, the air, the empty space which is sometimes associated with the, with the letter. A on top of a chaf. So you have the letter Lamed, the letter itself, and then the top of the Lamed reaches up higher. Then you have the space between the Lamed and Chaf, then you have the Chaf, and then you have, this is speaking about a, a final Chaf, a Langa Chaf. So the Langa Chaf also goes down below the line. So when you say two lines, we assume it means enough for a letter such as a Lamed on top and a Chaf on the bottom. Let's say the eight the witnesses were more than two lines away from the bottom of the document, which would mean that the document would be invalid. However, this blank space, these two lines or more between the document and the witnesses, the valid witnesses, is full with invalid witnesses or with relatives who are also invalid. Do we say that it has invalid witnesses and is therefore in uh, a puzzle document? Or do we say that there's impossible to forge and therefore it's kosher? So we say the second, It's valid because it cannot be forged. And we do have valid witnesses on it, we just have them on the bottom. Let's say the empty space was not filled in with invalid witnesses. Rather, it was filled in with scratches of ink. 
In this case, puzzle. It's invalid. I, you would think that it would be the same thing, that since it's filled in with scratches of ink, it would be impossible to forge anything in these last few lines. So now we say a different possibility over here. And perhaps the witnesses only signed on these ink scratches, that there was just some ink written over there, and perhaps that is exactly what they were signing to say, that perhaps there was something there and was crossed out, and they were uh, testifying as to that, or to testify that there is nothing more in this document other than scratches. And then somebody came and wrote the whole top of the document later on. And if all the... The entire document with the witnesses fit on one line with on one long piece of paper. Hara is a kosher. This is nevertheless kosher, even though normally we do not learn out anything from the final line of a document. In this case, since the whole document is one line, it is impossible to stick anything in the middle and forge it, and therefore it is valid. Halacha hey. Let's say the document was written on line number one and the witnesses were all written on line number two. In this case, it's not as good as all being on the same line. It's possible, invalid. Why? Perhaps these witnesses are not really signed, didn't really sign on this one line above them. They really had signed one line away from a kosher document. And what did this forger do? He cut away the whole rest of the document, and he was left with one blank line, because of and he wrote this new document in the one line above their, above their testimony. And it turns out that all these witnesses, it looks like they're signed on this document. And so too, if we have the entire document with the witnesses on one line, which as we mentioned in the previous Allah is kosher. However, there are two other witnesses on the second line, making a total of four witnesses. But Omar, the one holding the document, who brings it to court and tries to get it to get it validated. And, he, and they ask him, what are you doing here with four witnesses? But Omar, he says, I want to have extra witnesses. I want to have more than two. We do not validate those signatures on the second line. Only those that are on the first line, on the one long line of the document. What could be? Perhaps it was like this. Between that there was a regular document and there were witnesses that signed one line away from the document, which is allowed. So what did this person do? He cut off the whole top of the document, wrote in the blank line a new document with two witnesses himself. And we're left with the two witnesses on the bottom who never had anything to do with the second, first set of witnesses, with the, the set of witnesses written above them and the entire shtat. That's what he says. Perhaps in the line between the bottom witnesses and the document which was cut off, he wrote this entire document with two witnesses. Therefore, this document with its two witnesses is valid and we can be makayimit. However, the witnesses on the bottom, we suspect, have nothing to do with it and therefore their signatures cannot be validated. The next two halachas deal with the kiyum, the validation of Bezdin. Halacha vav. Kiyum Bezdin, the validation which the Bezdin writes, showing that the witnesses on a document and the document are valid. Connected 
It has to be either right next to the signature of the witnesses or right next to the side of the documents on the right or the left, and also on the top, of course, or on the back side of the document, the blank side of the of the uh, parchment or paper on the uh, in the place where there is writing opposite it. And should there be a space of one line between the Kiyum Bezdin and the document itself, it's invalid, unlike the signature of the witnesses. Perhaps someone will cut away the entire document which the validation really was referring to the Yazayef and he's going to forge over there a document with two witnesses and it'll turn out that the Kiyom Bezdin the validation is going to go on a, on a document which is totally forged in the case of the document itself we don't worry about leaving one blank line because we anyway don't learn from it but this does not apply to the Kiyom Bezdin Halacha Zayin Let's say the Kiyom Bezdin was more than two lines away from the end of the document. And we fill up the whole space with, with scratches of ink. In other words, just scribbled in lines. We said previously that if the witnesses would do that, it would be invalid. But here it's kosher. Why? First of all, it can't be forged. You can't write anything there. There's already ink. And second of all, and we don't worry that perhaps the, the court was validating these scratches of ink, but rather they do only on the, on the document itself. Witnesses, they have no limitation as to what they can testify on. They can testify that this was a blank piece of paper also. Or this was full, that they, that, in other words, that this was all full of ink scratches that they can testify to. But a court doesn't do such things. In Halacha's Ches, through Yud Beis, the Rambam now deals with erasures in the get. Halacha Ches. Kolam achokim kulam, tzorech sheyiftuf ki yumehem b'seif hashtar. Any erasure in the get, that it's obvious that something has been erased and written over, as the law is, as we mentioned previously, that such ink must be used that one would be able to recognize if something has been erased in order to avoid forgeries. So any place where you have such an erasure, it's necessary to to validate it at the end of the document. But Yemen, and you write the following, that such and such a letter, a word, or a line was written on, on, the erase, on the erased area. And this way you don't have to worry about forgery because in the document itself it says it was written on the erasure. Or you write that it was hanging in between lines. You could add a word sometimes between, a word could be forgotten. It could be written in between two lines, and even though it's out of place, and we suspect forgery, should you write it in the document itself, that such and such a word, or letter, or line is hanging, and everything is valid, then it is nevertheless valid and does not harm the validity of the document. However, if the erasure was in the place where normally you write Hakol Shorovakayim, at the end of the document, as we mentioned, we do not learn anything out. So the custom is to write Hakol Shorovakayim, everything is firm and valid on the last line of the document. Should, should there be an erasure over there? And it should be as long as the writing of the word Shorovakayim. Even though thereafter, there might be a kiyum, there might be a validation that there is an erasure over here, it's still invalid. 
Why? Shema Mochke, because of Derech Dover Shaziyah. Perhaps they erased Shara Vakayim, and then they wrote some forgery over there, Vachazar Vakimei, and then they validated it, Barrevach Shabbain Aksava Eidim, in the space between the writing and the witnesses. That since there might be enough room, enough space between the witnesses and the document itself, they could take the, the, the line Shara Vakayim, they could erase it, they could be Makayim it on the next line, and then write Shara Vakayim, and they would have enough room for everything. A document with which both the, the body of the document and the signatures all are written on a, an array section is valid. If you would worry that perhaps someone is going to erase it, that was the first time, and the, the witnesses and the document were written on the erased part, but then somebody is going to erase the document the second time and write what he wishes. Nevertheless, we don't worry, because there is no similarity, or rather there is a difference between something erased once and something erased twice. If we look closely, we will be able to tell the difference. And if you should worry, perhaps the place where the document was written was only erased once, and the place where the witnesses sign was erased twice. And the witnesses did not look closely enough to see that there is this difference between their place and the place of the document. And after the document is written, somebody will erase it a second time and will write whatever they wish. And it's going to look the same. Both the document and the signatures are going to look alike because they were all written on something which was erased twice. Nevertheless, even this our sages took care of. Our sages have already decreed that witnesses can only sign on a document which was erased if it has been erased in front of them. If they see it erased in front of them, then they are seeing the process, they will recognize the difference between a place which was erased twice, meaning the place where they are signing and the rest of the document, since they are seeing it done in front of them. And therefore, we don't have to worry about the witnesses not noticing. A document which it and its witnesses are on an erased section. However, the key and the validation of the court is underneath on the regular paper on a non-erased section. When this is brought to court for collection or for kiyum, we do not rely on the previous kiyum, the witnesses, that previously validated this document, but rather we only examine the witnesses written above on the erased part. Perhaps this kiyam was very far away from the document. But you cannot make, we learned earlier, kiyam far away from the document. And the space in between was filled up with ink scratches, which we said earlier was valid. What did this person do? He cut away the document itself, so he was left with a key in Bezdin on a place where there was ink scratches. He erased these ink scratches. And now he wrote the document with his witnesses on this erase section, and it looks like the Bezdin was Makayim, this, uh, this new star, where in reality it was forged. Therefore, we cannot rely on this previous Kiyom of Bezdin. 
Shtar abo al hanyor ve'edav al machak pasul. A document which itself is written on clean paper which was not erased, but the signatures were on an erased section is invalid. Because we worry about future forgery. Shema yimchek ashtar v'yizdayev. Perhaps someone will erase the top part and forge it. And it'll turn out both the document and the witnesses are on erased paper. And it's going to look fine, as we said in the halacha test, that it's valid. And if the witnesses wrote on the document, however, that we witnesses signed on the erased section, the document itself, however, was on an unerased section. Caution. In this case, it is valid because should it be erased later on, they will read what the witnesses wrote and see that something was forged. And they write this statement between one witness and the other in order to avoid forgery or somebody to try to ruin the document. Because if they write it underneath their signatures, somebody could always snip it off. And if they write it above their signatures, then the person could, er- the person could erase it. And it's going to be, er- looks like it's part of the erasure of the area of the signature of the witnesses. Therefore, we have it right, they write it between one witness and the other. A document which it is on the erased section and the witnesses are on the unerased section. Fossil is also invalid. Even if the witnesses write explicitly that we witnesses signed on a clean section and the document is on a machak on an erased section. What do we have to worry about here? Somebody is going to erase the top parts a, a second time, the case of Kolmashiyirs, and write whatever he wants. But won't we be able to recognize the difference between something erased once and something erased twice? So the Rambam says, not necessarily. The if, since it's all, the whole thing is erased twice, it's not recognized so easily. If we have one place erased once, and one place erased twice, and see them against each other, then we can tell a difference. But a place that was never erased against a place erased twice, this is something which is hard... If, if something which is not erased, this is something which is difficult to recognize. And one of the things our sages established is that the judge must carefully inspect the document and the vavs and zayins to make sure that they have not been pushed in between words. Because perhaps it was pushed between words if it's pushed between the words, perhaps it was forged and a person added a vav. And one vav can change the whole character of the shtar. As the Gemara tells the story with Abaya that somebody added a vav to add another person. They changed the word into the name of a person through just through adding a vav. And so too, so too, the vav cannot be too far away from another word or a zayin. Perhaps he erased part of the letter hey or ches. And he left one part of it, the right-hand sign, which looks like a vav. And anything similar to this, we are very carefully inspecting in any language or any handwriting. When someone writes down the amount, the number of money being the, the amount of money being borrowed, anything between the number three and ten, ain't kesim safe shita. One is not allowed to write it at the, as the last word of a line. Shemi yezayev v'yachzer ashalish l'shleishim v'eser l'eserim. 
Perhaps it will be forged, and the person will add on a yud and men, and the sholish will look, the three will look like shleishim thirty, and he will be able to change the ten into twenty from esr to esrim. What do you do if you didn't plan it out right? That it turned out to just to come out there at the end of the line. We repeat it several times in the, in the document until it turns out to be in the middle of a line. Uh, according to what the Rambam writes here, it could be that you write other things, repeat other things from the Shtar. The Rashbam, however, in the Gemara says you continue to write this same amount several times in the document. And even if the previous one should be forged, we will see from the next halacha that you will always go after the final time it is written. And therefore you won't have to worry that someone's going to add something in the top one, because anyway we would not follow it. We would follow the one which is written on the line below. Halacha Yudalit. A document which on the top part they wrote 100 and the bottom 200. Or the opposite, Above it says 200 and the bottom it says 100. Everything goes after the last one that we, we assume that the, that the person changed his mind from the first one and therefore the second one is the correct, the correct one. Why should we not follow the least of the two? That since in any case of Suffolk moment, where there is a doubt as to the money, we go after that which is, which is less. Because we don't take money if there's a Suffolk. Why in this case do we not? One is not dependent on the other. If the document would say a hundred, which is really 200, or conversely, 200, which is really 100, in this case, he would take only 100, because this is a clear case of doubt. But two separate statements, of which the second is independent of the first, we always go after the last one, because as we said, the person could have changed their mind in the course of writing the document. And so too, should above, there be written one name, and below a name written which is very close to it, but not absolutely identical. Again, we go after the bottom one, because perhaps the person was perfecting the writing of the name. If so, what do you need the upper one for? If you're anyway you're going to go by the by the latter one, why could should a person ever bother to write an upper one? In other words, what function could it possibly fulfill? Because perhaps one letter will be erased from the bottom one, and then we will learn from the top. Perhaps in the upper, the first time it was written, it said the name Chanoni or Anoni, and the bottom it says it without the yid Chanon or Anon. In this case, we know that it was the, really the top name which was correct, and the yud was erased. However, you cannot use the top one to figure out two letters, only for one letter, such as in this case that the Yud was missing from Hanani or Anani. What's the difference between two letters and one? It explains in the Gemara that perhaps you'll end up with a name with three letters, and if you take two, if you're going to complete with two letters from the top one, that means you're using the top one completely, not you're using it to be mashlim, to complete or perfect the bottom one, since it's the majority of letters, it's two out of three letters, you're basically relying on that. It's not only to fill in the missing spaces in the bottom one. Therefore, we cannot use more than one letter. Halacha tezvav. 
If on the top part of the star it's written Seifel. Seifel is an acronym that stands for saw pellet, meaning one saw and a half. Well, a saw is six kavim, so a saw and a half, a Seifel, would be nine kavim. Milamata kefil, kefil also stands for kav pelek, a, a kav and a half. The difference between the samach and the kuf, seifil and kefil, is whether it's nine kav or one and a half kav. Which one do we say it is? Here we go after the bottom one. Since the kefil is only one and a half, it's less than a seifil, which is nine kavim. But if it's the opposite, and above it says kefil, and the bottom it says seifel, the larger amount, in this case, We suspect, perhaps when the ink was still wet, along came a fly, and it took away the bottom of the kuf, the foot of the kuf, and therefore it was made into a samech. Through adding a little bit of ink, if one takes away the part of the kuf which is below the line, then you could just add a tiny bit of ink, and make the, the what's re, le, remaining from the kuf into a samach. And therefore, we take only a kefil. And we take only from the, from a small measure of a kefil. In any case of doubt, in general, the one who is, in, who is trying to collect with this document is at the disadvantage. And so too in the following case. So too the story happened that once a document said 601 Zeus. They were in doubt. Does it doesn't mean 600 Zeus and one Zeus, a total of 601. Or maybe the Sheish Meis was different from the Zeus Echod. What was the Sheish Meis? A Sheish Meis Eastra. It was 600 Easter, and an Easter is only half of a Zeus. So maybe it was 600 Easter and one Zeus, which would be only a total of 301 Zeus, instead of 601 Zeus. What did they say? Our sages said to take 600 Easter and a Zeus, for a total of 301 Zeus. Because the one trying to collect with the document is at the disadvantage. In Cain, If we're going so far as to put the one who's collecting at a disadvantage, why don't we say he meant even a smaller coin, 600 prutas and a Zeus, that it takes 192 prutas to make up, to make up a Zeus? So maybe that's what he meant, 600 prutas and a Zeus? So then Amam says, this wouldn't make sense. The way people write Prutas in a document is first. One joins them together to Zuzin, since they're such small coins. And afterwards he writes how many Zuzin there were and how many Prutas are left over. So he wouldn't write the word Zuz afterwards. He writes first how many Zuzin there are and how many Prutas are left over. And so too, in any similar case, according to the time and place, and according to the custom over there, and at the time, you judge what it means, the words, the words that are written in the document, what exactly was meant. Halacha Tezayin. To get the measurements straight for this halacha, an istira is equal to 96 prutas. It's half a zuz, 96 prutas. A ma over here, sometimes we have a silver ma, which is large, but the ma referred to here is a ma of nechayshes, and it is equal to one, to one pruta. So we're going to compare her an istera, which is which is 96 prutas, as compared to 100 prutas. 
Starsha Kosov by Istra Mayamoy, a document which has written in it an Istra, and right after it it says a hundred more. Or Shakosov by Mayamoy. Istra, or it says first a hundred more, and then the Istra. The Easter is four prut is less than a hundred more. So Hoylech Achar Achas. We go after the lower one of these expressions and therefore he takes only the Easter, which is less. Because the principle is And again the principle is that the one who is trying to collect has a disadvantage, since he is trying to take away money from the other. And he can only take away something of which there is no doubt. And there is no doubt that he owes him at least one Easter. Therefore, that's all he can take. But since the whole principle here is that one person is taken away from another, any document which could mean two things, he only can take the lower of the two. However, if he happened to have grabbed the, high, the, the higher amount, we cannot take it away from him unless we have a clear proof. Because just like he was not allowed to grab it, once he did grab it, we can't take it away from him because we're also not sure he's right. Now that he is the muhzak, he has it, we cannot take it away from him unless we have clear proof. Now the final lach of the parakalach yudzayim. If the document says a gold coin, it's not less than one gold dinner. If it says golden dinners or dinners of gold, it's not less than two gold dinners. Zahav bedinin, but if it says gold, given in dinars, it doesn't mean gold dinars. In pachas mishava shnei dinar shul kesef minazav. You have to give him at least gold of a value of two silver dinarin. Since it says gold in dinarin, it means dinarin of of silver. But just you're gonna pay him off in gold, so therefore it's much less than two gold dinarin. The king called Koyetz possess so to any similar case. Slikulu hilchas malva v'leve v'saitet ishmaim. With this, we have finished. The laws of a lender and borrower with Hashem's help.